Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Holcraft, coming to you from... KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the life and thought of one Pope Francis. And as I do, uh, for the most part, um, on Wednesdays, I have Bob Cross with me. So, Bob, it is great to have you with me another another evening. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. So, Bob, mm-hmm. uh, we once again do have Pope Francis in the news, some media-driven controversy. This past week... Our Holy Father married 20 uh, different couples, and ultimately, these couples uh, have a background of sin, as uh, Bob, all couples do, um, but in particular, there, were some, there was some cohabitation and, and other things that were there. And so the media wanted to portray what Pope Francis was doing as um, a dissension from, uh, traditional Catholic, from the traditional Catholic way of doing things. And so what I want to do... Uh, as we do from time to time, Bob, is clarify what had actually happened and to reflect upon, once again, why the media is doing this. Isn't it interesting that, you know, the progressives out there are always, and we, it seems like every week, you know, it's rather than, you know, we talk about a controversy associated with Pope Francis, but the progressives are always hoping that no matter what he does, even if it's you know, at a mass, they have these 20 couples that actually... Um, are are being married, they see it as an opportunity. The progressives, that is, in the media, as a as a way of looking to hopefully move their agenda, hoping that there's something there that'll allow them to be able to say, "Oh, up, see, yeah, Pope Francis, he's a progressive," mm-hmm. as opposed to looking at the facts for what they are. Exactly. Okay, and and if you were to go to the the secular media reports, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of bad reporting. Again, what did Pope Francis say as the great sin of journalism, the great sin of reporting, is is not reporting the right information, okay? And so there's a number of things here that I, I want to hit, and I'm going to be drawing from an article written by one Terry Mattingly uh, that you can find um, on newadvent.org, and he's got a blog that's quite popular. You know, Bob, when covering major events— uh, that are directly linked to the liturgical work and authority of the Pope, we should always be mindful to read up on the Catechism of the Catholic Church so as to first understand what is going on. Uh, and in this case, I think it would help if we looked at the material found in paragraph uh, 2391. And so I've got that here, and I just want to read this. Okay, now this is within the context of uh, couples who have been cohabitating and ultimately uh, were married by Pope Francis. But what was going on? All right. Paragraph 2391 reads, Some today claim a right to a trial marriage where there is an intention of getting married later. However, firm the purpose of those who engage in premature sexual relations may be, the fact is that such liaisons can scarcely ensure mutual sincerity and fidelity in a relationship between a man and a woman, nor especially can they protect it from inconstancy of desires or whim. 
carnal union is morally legitimate only when a definitive community of life between a man and a woman has been established. Human love does not tolerate trial marriages. It demands a total and definitive gift of persons to one another. Okay, what, what does the Church say there? Ultimately, and this kind of goes back to subject matter I've talked about in other radio programs, that by cohabitating in, in the world, Bob, of, well, I want to I wanna make sure if this is the right person, in the end, the fact of the matter remains, we are never going to know our future spouse totally and entirely. There's always going to be a part of them we do not know, Right. There's the, the story I share of the couple uh, that was married for 75 years. And when asked, how did they do it? Their wonderful response of, we're still getting to know each other. It really, to me, in microcosm, highlights the essence of <laughs> why trial marriages, quote unquote, uh, does not work. Now, all that being said, and with that in mind, let's look at some important, maybe rather picky, but necessary issues of verb tense in the mainstream news coverage of uh, that remarkable wedding rite that took place at the Vatican. Why? Because how we talk about things, Bob, in the present tense, in the past tense, in the future tense, always determines so much. So while what we are talking about right now might seem picky, (laughs) good reporting always puts things in their proper tense. Uh, This is why when we write English papers, we are always making sure that we're in the same tense, right? So let us start with a report that first came out of Australia, a report that was based upon Reader's Press material. This is their their report. Pope Francis has presided over the marriage of 20 couples in the first papal wedding ceremony at the Vatican in 14 years. Among the couples were several who were cohabitating and one couple who had children. The Vatican views sex outside of marriage as sin. But Pope Francis has stressed that the church should be a forgiving one. Uh, This story uh, has it all in many ways. Uh, First of all, (laughs) a kind of implicit slam of Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, right? And as well as out-of-context references to statements by Pope Francis, hinting, hinting, Bob, that he is leading attacks on Catholic moral theology. But simply note the reference to couples who were cohabitating. In other words, the carnal union question is in the past tense. The crucial question then is what had been happening in the present tense during the preparations for this marriage. And when I read this article, this was the first thing that struck me. Huh? So were these Catholics still living together or had they separated and gone to confession? News stories constantly, Bob, quote Pope Francis talking about how God is merciful and willing to forgive. Yet they never note that Catholicism has a sacramental process for that, the sacrament of confession. They are hinting that this Pope is breaking the rules. Okay, let's continue with some of these uh, other articles and how they uh, want to develop this, their own, as you talked about it, to some degree, progressive, uh, progressive agenda. This is an article from the Washington Post. Pope Francis presided over the wedding of 20 couples on Sunday, some of whom had lived together and had children. In the latest sign that the Argentine pontiff wants the Catholic Church to be more open and inclusive. Really? (laughs) How? When? What did he say? It goes on. In the first wedding ceremony of his 18-month-old papacy, Francis took each couple through their vows in turn, including Gabriella and Guido, 
who have children and thought such a marriage would be impossible, the official broadcasting service Vatican Radio said. Hmm. Misinterpreting there. Misreporting. This time around, the tense is more precise, stating that these couples had lived together. That is not the same as we're living together. I want to go on. This, is, this comes from the Associated Press. Forty I do's, or see in Italian, were pronounced in St. Peter's Basilica Sunday as Pope Francis married 20 couples, with one bride already a mother. Francis and his homily likened families to the bricks that built society. Among the couples, all from the Rome, uh, Rome area, is one in which the groom's first marriage was annulled by the church and the bride has a daughter from an early relationship. Some of the other couples already were living together. The Vatican views sex outside of marriage as sin, but Francis stresses the church should be a forgiving one. So in many ways here, we have come full circle, Bob. We are back to a vague past tense with the statements that some of the couples already were living together. But were they living together in the time leading up to the marriage rites? Did these couples separate for a time and cease sexual relations during preparations for marriage? The church can and should be forgiving, yes, but was there any repentance? Did the participants go to confession as part of the preparation for the sacrament of, sacrament of marriage? These are questions that need to be asked by the reporters. These are questions that need to be talked about in the writing. These are necessary questions of good journalism, Bob. <laughs> you know, the Pope consistently uses language of mercy and forgiveness. And in many ways, the implication here, Bob, is that the people were leaving sins behind. How? How was that acted out in the sacraments? In other words, no matter what we think of the moral issues at stake in these stories, we have very imprecise reporting here. To me, this vague language seems very intentional. Journalists are supposed to ask questions and then report the facts, just not report what they think they know. That's bad, sloppy journalism. And what we have here is what we've had for the last year and a half when it comes to Pope Francis. This, this language, this very vague language, Bob, where the church is being presented as something that it's not. And I say that because Pope Francis, again, is a son of the church. He isn't doing or saying anything that is against the, the teachings of the Catholic Church. What's wrong here is journalism. You're right. And it's, I, I think the sloppiness of the journalism of which you, you, you refer is is as it's it's a it's a sloppiness born out of the fact that they don't really want to do any homework because they want to just settle on you know this this viewpoint that the church is very very rigid with its rules as it relates to marriage couples and premarital sex they don't want to acknowledge that there may be processes or there may be ways that the church helps people to heal mm-hmm. if and when they've had issues with marriage or uh, had cohabitated and and the like, you know. I mean, this hits really home to me because, um, you know, I'm a Catholic who is who's married, um, but uh, we're going through the annulment process. Mm-hmm. My my wife uh, has not gone through the annulment process, and uh, she's almost through that now. And we're looking forward to being able to have our marriage blessed. And so, you know, it's interesting to see how the church works if you really understand that it has these the the abilities where people to go through the forgiveness and the repentance process that has always been there. Mm-hmm. This is not just something that, Saint, that, that Pope Francis is all of a sudden starting to advocate as they would have you or hope you, for you to believe with mm-hmm. their sloppy journalism. 
Yeah, and you highlight something there that I think really is the quintessential point on this matter. Pope Francis was talking about mercy, forgiveness, and reconciliation. This is why the church has what it has in place so that process can happen. Now, a lot of people say, well, what, why, do, why does not the church just allow divorce when, when, the, when the couples are so broken? I'm, I'm, I'm right now in a number of uh, conversations with different married couples talking about this, and that the process that's in place is for there to be good, clear counseling and spiritual direction so that before any rash decision is made, they can see things more for what they are. We need that sounding board, and that sounding board is the wisdom of the church. Now, granted, you know, Pope Francis in this upcoming synod here in the fall of 2015 on the family, yeah, they're going to look at things, maybe we can change this up or that up, but but the, nothing major is going to happen. And if, and if there's any listener out there who would disagree with that, just look at what Pope Francis has actually said, okay? There's not going to be a big shift on, say, cohabitation or other matters uh, like this article would suggest and these articles would suggest. Um, it's about reconciliation, and uh, the Church will always put itself at the heart of that. And, and what it needs to do, it will do, but it'll always do in principle. And we don't put principles within the context of what is abstract, but what is real, tangible, and above all else, a person, because it's about Jesus Christ, and it's about being reconciled with the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I know some for some of us, Bob, it's really hard when you start talking about marriage and divorce and the process of reconciliation, but there isn't anything, there isn't anything that he has not already conquered in the world of what is difficult on the cross. He went through what he went through, well, above all else, so that we might be ransomed from sin, but also there, there would never be a man in human history post-Christ that could say he doesn't understand because he does understand. There's nothing he doesn't understand, and he understands so much that he dwelt among us to show us he understands. And that is so important, Bob, when we talk about this. And I go there now on this topic because that is our fallback. Well, no one understands. No, I might not understand totally and entirely, Bob, what you might be going through and vice versa, but Christ does understand. So let's talk about that and let that be our point of discussion. So in marriages that are broken, in marriages that need reconciliation. Let's look to Christ for the example. In marriages that are in sin, and in those who are in, in, in those who are um, boyfriend girlfriend who are not yet married in sin, let's talk about the one who does understand and go from there. So and, important. And as Christ understands, you know, His Church understands. <clears throat> Christ, being that Word, you know, being the the Holy Spirit that, that dwells. Uh, within the church and you know that understanding is something that um, that again is is misconstrued misreported all the time by virtue of those who would like to think that the church is just completely throwing out you know uh, 2,000 years of of gospel inspired Mm -hmm. means of how we should live amen because of that understanding that Christ had Christ being fully human, but yet being fully divine, that realizes that, you know, we make mistakes. We fall uh, from grace. And in doing so, we have the church, we have Christ's blessing, we have his mercy, and the church is rich with it. Mm-hmm. And, and 
you know, all we have to do is just, is just dig a little deeper mm-hmm. and understand what the church really represents and what it says about certain mm-hmm. things to understand, rather than just looking at the headlines yeah. that we, we get every day. We have to ask the question, why? Let's not be accusatory, per se. Let's just ask the question, why? Because the church has a response to every question. Now, whether you like that or not, I can only pray for the grace of disposition, but maybe asking that question why within the disposition of genuinely wanting to know why, huh? It's to always remember that the church is mother. And, and, and as a mother, sometimes the church says no for a reason. Because for all of you moms out there, no, you say no for a reason. Because that behind every no, of course, is an immeasurable greater yes, Bob. So, very good. I think this is, uh, this is an invigorating discussion for sure. And I, my sense of it is we're probably going to return to this next week a little bit, Bob. So, I do want to get into joy of the gospel, this great exhortation, and more or less just kind of pick up where we left off last week. And I think that brings us, Bob, to paragraph 84. Right, right, 84. Um, and the title of this section is, is called No to a Sterile Pessimism, chapter 84 of Joy of the Gospel. The joy of the gospel is such that it cannot be taken away from us by anyone or anything. And it's interesting, if you want to pause there, Bob, because just in that opening sentence here, we have for a third time the phrase, the joy of the gospel being used. Now remember, this is the title of the exhortation itself. The first time we saw uh, Pope Francis was talking about, you know, that this is what all people experience when they encounter Jesus. The second time, that uh, Pope Francis used it is when he was talking about the need for all people to encounter this. And now here for a third time, and this is interesting, he's putting it in the context of a sterile pessimism. So he's telling us what lies at the heart of the absence of the joy of the gospel, that essentially if this is a document on the new evangelization, if this is an exhortation on this call that you and I and all of us out there, Bob, have to share uh, the gospel in word and deed, if there's one thing today that uh, pulls at us is this pessimism, this, and I love that phrase, sterile pessimism. So I think we need to make note of that. You know, as for any of you out there who are authors who like to write, when you put the title of your work within the work, I, I think you're trying to make a statement. There's a reason why. And uh, certainly we can say that here with Pope Francis. Okay, yeah, the joy of the gospel takes place when we encounter Jesus. The joy of the gospel is for everyone. Oh, by the way, Bob, that one thing that takes away from that joy is that sterile pessimism. And it goes on to read, um, The evils of our world and those of the church must not be excuses for diminishing our commitment and our fervor. Let us look upon them as challenges which can help us to grow. With the eyes of faith, we can see the light which the Holy Spirit always radiates in the midst of darkness, never forgetting that where sin increased, grace has abounded all the more. Our faith is challenged to discern how wine can come from water and how wheat can grow in the midst of weeds. Fifty years after the Second Vatican Council, we are distressed by the troubles of our age and far from naive optimism. Yet the fact that we are more realistic must not mean that we are getting or we are any less trusting in the spirit or less generous. In this sense, we can once again listen to the words of blessed 
John the 23rd. At times we have to listen much to our regret, the voices of people who, though burning with zeal, lack a sense of discretion and measure. In this modern age, they can see nothing but prevarication and ruin. We feel that we must disagree with those prophets of doom who are always forecasting disaster, as though the end of the world were at hand. In our times, divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations, which by human effort, and even beyond all expectations, are directed to the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs, in which everything, even human setbacks, leads to the greater good of the church. Amen. I love that quote. I kind of sat with that quote this morning and just really was reflecting upon that. Such a beautiful quote because today, like yesterday and five years ago and 10 years ago, Bob, and 20 years ago, people were talking about the end times. It's just so bad, Joe, huh? It's just so bad. So what does that mean? We know not the day nor the hour, bottom line. And providentially, even when times are bad, as Pope Francis is talking about here, where sin arises, Romans 5.20, great quote, where sin arises, grace abounds all the more. If you were to look into the past, Bob, there is a striking revelation, and it is this. Every time there's a great decline in uh, the way of the church or, or, or holiness, there arises the saint. It go into the 1200s. You know, here you have St. Francis of Assisi, St. Dominic. All of these great saints come to us from one period to the next. I mean, even the first 300 years, this great time of persecution, the Christian faith was realized because of those who were willing to lay down their life. What, Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is effective Christian seed. You know, paraphrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So throughout church history, we see this great truth. Men and women alike laying down their life for the sake of the faith. And it happens when things are dire. I think many of our listeners are familiar, Bob, with St. Maximilian Kolbe, the man who gave his life in Auschwitz, the concentration camp of World War II. Ed Gajovnicek, a father and husband. He was the, a third man called out for someone who, who uh, escaped from their uh, chamber. There were a hundred in each chamber, and if one person escaped, then ten would die in that uh, escapee's name. Ed Gajovnicek was the third name mentioned. One Father Maximilian Kolbe goes to the front, which in of itself was a miracle, and he gives his life over for Ed, one Ed Gajovnicek. And he became the saint of Auschwitz, as John Paul II declared, St. John Paul II declared, the patron saint for a difficult age. And that's just one story of so many, Bob, of men and women rising up in these dire times. And today, 2014, we have many men and women who are rising up because of this culture of death that we live in, this culture where there's just an absence of love at the highest levels. And so what he's talking about here, in many ways, is the glass half empty or half full, right? I mean, if it's half full, then we're going to take the bull by the horns and do everything that God is calling us to do and lead that charge. And in doing so, hopefully uh, become a saint all the while. You know, it's um, it's a little footnote that uh, Pope Francis is the first pope since Vatican II that was not a part of it. And I read that the other day. And he is um, very, very much inspired by Vatican II. Yeah. So much so that a lot of people predict that he wants to have another Vatican Council at some point in time, which is, you know, not in the foreseeable future or something sure. that I'm sure is even on the agenda. Sure. But, uh, you know, here's a, here's a man who 
loves and believes and really thrives in the spirit of you know saint john the 23rd and his predecessors who were so instrumental in in advocating into the second vatican council so much so that you know he's he's excited about it to a much greater extent i'm not saying that the other his predecessors no. were uh, took it for granted no. but he's really excited about it because he grew up you know admiring and and being mm-hmm. inspired by that and is excited about it to this day and it's that's why the new evangelization is just so important to him well bob let's put this in the context of a relay huh as you're talking there i just kind of had this image of a relay here you have john the 23rd john the 23rd gives the baton to Pope Paul VI. And so Pope Paul VI is kind of the first stretch, the first hundred meters. And he gives us this great document, Evangelization in the Modern World, where he's really the first to start using the language of the new evangelization. And then he gives the baton to John Paul II, okay? And we can certainly put John Paul I in there as well. And that hundred meters is about hope. And then uh, John Paul II gives the baton to uh, Pope Benedict XVI, and he carries the baton, and that 100 meters is about faith. And then, in that last stretch, we see Benedict XVI hand over that baton to Pope Francis, and this last 100 meters is about love, the crowning virtue to what lies at the heart of the mission of the new evangelization. So in light of this call to love, Pope Francis says, you know, stop being sourpusses. He uses that word in in paragraph 85. Stop being sourpusses. Stop being so sterile. You've been entrusted with a vocation. You've been entrusted with a mission. Don't let the world sap you from your joy and fervor. Understand that tomorrow is not going to see, it's not going to be the end. No, it's going to be a beginning the beginning of you saying yes to doing what God wants you to do and ultimately be an agent for the new evangelization. You know, paragraph 86, Bob says, everywhere we go, and I'm paraphrasing now, nations, cities, neighborhoods, it seems like there's a desert, a desert, an absence of what is life-giving. Draw from the source of the cross draw from the source of the cross and become that well, become that source of strength for your brother and sister in Christ. Do not let the weight of the world get you down. Are we putting our hope in some political structure? Are we putting our hope in some political pundit? Are we putting our hope in a president? Are we putting our hope in things that we cannot control? Put your hope in Jesus Christ. He'll show you and give you all of your heart's desires and the rest will take care of itself. There's another great line that he has in paragraph 85. He says, nobody can go off to battle unless he's fully convinced of victory beforehand. If we start without confidence, we have already lost half the battle and we can bury our own talents. So, yeah, if we have this sterile pessimism, how can we go out and actually represent, you know, the light, the truth, the love that we, that we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus? Amen, Bob. Let's close with that quote. That was a great quote. <laughs> Let's close with that quote. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.